Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 9 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. And uh, you're going to notice as we go along that um, I'm not going to finish. Uh, I realized during the first service that I actually had three messages in one. And so um, we'll get through as much as we can this week. I want to start by telling you a story, though. When, when my wife and I were first married, and Tristan and I were first married, we were living in a duplex over on Navarro Drive in Southwood Valley. And uh, we'd been married about a year or two, and we had some new neighbors move in, young couple. Uh, they're a little bit younger than us, moved in. They were going to grad school. And uh, my wife, being the, the people person that she is and the evangelist that she is, she went immediately over when they moved in and met our new neighbors and and talked to our new neighbors. And in that first conversation, she had an opportunity to share the gospel with, uh, with the wife, which if you know my wife, that's not surprising at all. I mean, she's very winsome. She's very compelling. Uh, She loves to share her faith. It's a very natural transition. So she got to share her faith and, and she has, I will tell you many times, you know, sitting on an airplane, sitting in the MSC, uh, seeing people just right there at that moment, trust Christ and pray with her. That's Part of the way that God has gifted her. I I haven't seen that. I wish I had, and I I asked God for that. Um, But she has. So she went over and she shared the gospel with this this young lady. And when she finished sharing the gospel, uh, our new neighbor said, oh, that's nice. And that was the end of the conversation. (laughs) That's as far as it got. So my wife came home and I said, hey, how'd it go? And she said, well, I got to share the gospel with her. I said, really? Because I'm expecting, you know, something happened. She goes, yeah, she said, that's nice. Now what? (laughs) <laughs> where do we go from here? Well, she was just joking, of course. Where we go from there is, well, we began just to live out the life of Christ next to our neighbors, to love them, to serve them, to display, hopefully, the personality and the character of Jesus Christ. Hopefully, we'll, we'll be able to knock down barriers and move them one step closer to Jesus Christ. It's a long process. And Peter's going to address that this morning. Certainly, every believer in Jesus Christ needs to know the words of the gospel. All right, if an opportunity presents itself, you need, need to be able to get to the point. That is one of the, the great heartbeats I have for our church. Every single one of you would know how to clearly, concisely say the words of the gospel, and it would not be confused. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for your sins. And to give you the gift of eternal life. You can receive that right now if you believe. That took me about five seconds. Okay, Every one of us should know the words of the gospel. But even more important and more foundational, we should be living the gospel. We should be living lives that, that are different, that are compelling, that are winsome and move people toward faith in Jesus Christ. And that's really what Peter is going to emphasize this morning. I want you to read with me. Beginning in verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own special possession. And here's the purpose. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." Peter tells us that we are called to proclaim Jesus Christ first 
by living excellent lives. Okay? By living excellent, beautiful lives. How do we do that? Well, two ways, he says. First, you have to remain distinct. You have to remain different. He says, uh, he says here, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Pull back from those natural inclinations of your fallen nature because they are waging war and trying to destroy your soul or your life. And if you participate in those things, you will not be a vivid witness to the example of Jesus Christ on earth. These things are waging war against your soul. They're trying to destroy the life, the purpose for which God has left you here on earth. And the reason that you do that, he says, is because you are aliens and strangers. And as you heard that, I hope that you heard the echo of chapter 1, verse 1. This is where Peter started the book. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are chosen aliens. That is, you are not ultimately citizens of this earth. Your greater citizenship is in heaven. And because that is your more enduring identity, you should live different lives. You shouldn't fit in with the culture around you. There should be times when you are bumping up against the culture around you because this world is not your ultimate home. It is not your ultimate destiny. And so he says, remain distinct, but at the same time, stay engaged with the culture. As long as you are living and breathing here on earth at this point in time, engage with the culture. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, hopefully you'll recall that as we were kind of mapping out the theme of 1 Peter, we said this idea of behavior is really critical. It's key. It's a, it's a theme that Peter traces throughout. It means your, your public conduct. Or in other words, the way that you conduct your life because the world is watching. That word for as they observe them means to pay close and careful attention to something. The world is watching your life. The world is watching your responses to good circumstances and bad circumstances. And Peter says, let your life be excellent, or you could translate that beautiful. What they see, let it be beautiful. And let your life also be characterized by good deeds, that is, uh, deeds that are intrinsically valuable, that create value for the culture. Because, Christians, if we are obeying Jesus Christ in every area of our life, we will benefit the culture. We will benefit society. Obedience to God is good for our culture. Now, culture doesn't always see it that way, do they? Sometimes they see our lives and they, they reject what we are doing. That's what was happening in Peter's day. To this group of believers, he writes because they're trying to do good deeds and as a result, they are being slandered. Their good name is being spoken against and they are being called evildoers. The accusation is you are actually destructive to the culture. Now you need to understand the setting. Christianity has, has just been born. The church has just emerged. And as a result, these people are beginning to see themselves as different, as set apart. God, in a mystery form, is establishing his kingdom upon earth, and we are different, we are distinct. And so they began to pull away from certain practices of their culture. They didn't go to the theater, they didn't go to the gladiatorial games. 
They didn't participate in in a lot of the festivals. Sometimes family ties were broken over Jesus Christ. Sometimes business relationships were broken over Jesus Christ. And so Christians were labeled as antisocial, harmful to the fabric of society. They were labeled sometimes as atheists because they wouldn't worship the pantheon of gods. So they're atheists. Sometimes they were labeled as treasonous because they wouldn't worship the emperor. You Christians, you're destructive to society. The Roman historian Suetonius was writing about the reign of of Nero and how the Christians were treated. And he said this, Punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. That's how people think about Christians sometimes today, isn't it? You're, you're narrow and simple-minded and intolerant and judgmental and misunderstood. Against Jesus, they leveled the accusation that he was an evildoer. Even though everything in his life was intrinsically good and beneficial to the society around him, he was called an evildoer, particularly by the leadership because they couldn't understand his brand of righteousness. Jesus goes out and he heals all these people and yeah, that's good, but he does it on the Sabbath. That's breaking the law and he wouldn't fit their mold of what was good for their culture. And so they branded him as an evildoer. And these people were being branded as evildoers. And Christians, sometimes you are branded as an evildoer and your good name in Jesus Christ is slandered. How do you react? What do you do? How do you respond? Well, if you understand that the purpose for your life is to draw people to Jesus Christ, then you don't slander in return. Right? You choose to forego your right to protect your name for the good of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that living not in the times of... of this culture in particular, but uh, living in a a different day and age, we have rights that sometimes we're called upon to protect. Okay, sometimes we're called upon to protect the rights of others. But I want you to notice what Peter says here. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, as they watch them carefully, Glorify God in the day of visitation. So you can, day after day, month after month, year after year, as you continue to live a life that is good in the sight of God, that is beneficial to the society, you begin to break down barriers to the gospel. And some, not all, but some people will be compelled to believe in Jesus Christ through your life. Some people on the day of visitation will be standing with this group of people. They will be worshipers. This week I've been going back and rereading the Sermon on the Mount. And as I'm reading it, I'm hearing all of these these, uh, allusions or or echoes from the Sermon on the Mount that have filtered into 1 Peter. You know, Peter was standing there listening to Jesus as he gave this sermon. One verse in particular stands out. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That they may see your good works and be drawn to worship him. And so sometimes as Christians, it is our job to use the avenues that are available to us to plead our case or to fight for justice for someone else. But sometimes we're called upon to surrender our rights 
so that people can be drawn to Jesus Christ. This is, Peter will say, excellent living. He's going to get really specific. What does excellent living look like when we as believers engage with the culture? I want you to read with me chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Peter will say specifically, the way that we proclaim Christ and live a life of excellence is by submitting with endurance. This is going to be an enormously significant concept for Peter. He's going to apply this concept of submission uh, in at least five areas in this book. He's going to talk about citizens submitting to the government. Slaves submitting to masters. Uh, He's going to talk about wives submitting to husbands. The angels in submission to Jesus Christ. Young men in submission to the elders. Submission is critical because it follows the example of Jesus Christ. Submitting means to put or place our will below someone else, to remain in the authority of someone else. And I will tell you, this goes very much contrary to much of our nature. We want to live independently of authority. We want to be able to exercise and cling to and defend our own rights all the time. But he says, if you want to follow the example of Jesus Christ and proclaim Christ in the world, sometimes it will mean sacrificing, surrendering your rights and remaining under the authority of someone else. Specifically, submit to governing authorities. He says, to every human institution, specifically to kings and to governors who are sent by him. And what he means by this at a bare minimum is obey the law of the land. Okay, Christians, it is our duty to obey the law of the land as good citizens. So 55 means 55, right? (laughs) Obey the laws, but it goes beyond that. He says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, show honor to the king. Be respectful. There may be a law on the books that you don't like. Are you still respectful? Or do you, through your words, slander or disparage those who have written the law? Now, when everything is working well in a government, this is easy. He says here that the government is put in place, why? For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And when this is working well, we're all happy, okay? The bad guys are getting punished and we, the good people, are being praised, And everything's working well and everything's working properly and we like it. But what do we do when the governing authorities are not governing in a way that we like or respect or value? How do we respond then? Surely we have the right to cast off all authority from us and to speak against those who've written the laws, right? We have have the right to do that, shouldn't we? Well, I want to put you back in the context in which Peter wrote. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, specifically to a king as the one in authority. And who does he mean by the king? Well, in this context, he means the emperor. And when Peter wrote this book, do you know who was emperor? Nero. If you have read anything about uh, first century history, you know that Nero, uh, he was not a good guy. He didn't have a lot of fans. He wasn't a great emperor, a loved emperor. Again, uh, quoting from 
Suetonius, in a um, description here of Nero, says, according to Suetonius, Nero showed neither discrimination nor moderation in putting to death whomever he pleased. He even uh, had his own mother executed. Wow. And stepbrothers and rivals. He was an immoral man, an ungodly man. According to history, he put many, many Christians to death after Rome was burned in 64. And we know, according to Christian history as well, that it was under Nero's Rome that both Paul and Peter, who wrote this book, were executed in Rome. So, to a group of believers who are out there living under the authority of Nero and Rome, Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, even to Nero. How do you think they reacted when they first heard that? Wow. Okay, we think we have it bad from time to time, right? Every few years we go, oh, we don't like that president, we don't like this president or this governor or this mayor, but we haven't had anything like Nero, okay? And Peter says, submit. Submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, are there exceptions to that rule? Yes, but not as many as we would like, okay? I want you to keep your place here in 1 Peter and turn to Acts chapter 4. Great illustration of an exception to this rule from Peter's own life. Remember, the church has just been born on the day of Pentecost. And Peter has been out preaching. He has taken his role as a leader among the disciples. And he's been preaching the gospel. Not just house to house, but even publicly and in the temple. He's just been uh, preaching a sermon and healing people. He walked through the temple courtyard and he saw a man who was lame and he said, Stand up. I don't have silver or gold, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up, walk, pick up your pallet, go. And the man did. It was amazing. And so he got arrested for that. He and John were arrested for that and they were put into prison. Verse 18, it says, When they, that is the authorities, had summoned Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They said no to the authorities. Because the authorities were commanding them to do something that God had explicitly commanded them to do. Notice it goes on. It says, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. On account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. They had done something that was good for the culture. And yet they were slandered. And when they were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, what did they say? They said, no. Okay, you've, you've crossed over the limits of your authority. And you've stepped into the authority of God. We cannot stop preaching. And so as Christians, we are commanded to obey the earthly authorities that are placed over us, unless they're calling us to do something that is unethical or immoral or ungodly, explicitly against the commandment of God. But up until that point, it is our calling to obey and submit. And beyond that, to do so with honor and respect. Now, Peter doesn't leave us with such a difficult command without motivation. Turn back to 1 Peter again. Verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. It, not because the earthly authority deserves it, but for the Lord's sake. 
Notice verse 16, he gets even more explicit. Now, I'm going to retranslate this for you. It should read like this. As free people, not using freedom as a covering for evil. That is, as people who have been been freed from a futile way of life and brought into a meaningful way of life. As people who have been freed from being responsible ultimately just to earthly authorities, now you are responsible to a higher authority, okay? But you're, you're free. As free people, not using your freedom as a covering for evil. That is, you still have responsibility to earthly authorities. But as bond slaves of God, then he issues four imperatives. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In other words... You are bond slaves of God. And so, for the sake of conscience toward God, for the sake of God, submit to these authorities. But you give fear to God and honor the king. Okay, fear is a stronger verb. Your ultimate authority is to God. And someday you will answer to God for the way that you submitted to the earthly authorities. Okay, submit, therefore, for the Lord's sake. So practically, how do we work this out? How do we remain in submission to our earthly authorities, showing them respect, and yet engaging in the culture in a winsome way? Let me give you one specific application that you're going to have an opportunity to exercise in just a few weeks. Vote. They couldn't vote in Peter's day. But today, one of the ways that you can be a really good citizen, show submission to authority, and also do good works, is by voting. I heard just a couple of weeks ago that in the last national election, evangelical Christians voted at a rate of 40%. Okay, only 40% of evangelical Christians voted, which is a tragedy. Because when we vote, we can vote consistent with our value system. We can vote for, for justice and righteousness. We can vote according to a biblical hierarchy of ethics. Life is even more important than the economy. And we can vote for life. And we can vote according to our value system. So we can do good for our culture when we engage in our culture through voting. And we can discuss these issues with people who don't know Jesus Christ in a way that is honoring and respecting to them. Hey, we can listen to their opinion. We can seek to understand why do they hold that opinion. And we can show them honor and respect. Remember Peter's command, honor all people. We honor all people because they're made in the image of God, not because we agree with their position on an issue. We honor all people because all people are made in the image of God. Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Anarchist. Okay? They're all in the image of God. And so we, so we show them honor and respect. Black and white and Asian and Hispanic all are in the image of God. And so so we show them honor and respect in the way we engage in our culture. Remembering this, that our ultimate goal is not to win every argument or to win every election. Our ultimate goal is to live in such a way that people are drawn to Jesus Christ. Because if we win the election and we don't display Christ in such a way that they're drawn to Christ, eternity hangs in the balance. And that is more important So the way that we live out our lives should be designed to draw people to Jesus Christ. And so he says, be the best citizens. Be engaged, be informed, be wise, be respectful, and point people to Jesus Christ. So first, as citizens. Second, he's going to make application in terms of slaves. 
Okay? Or servants. Read with me. Chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Okay, I want to make two caveats here. First is, slavery in the first century setting was not like slavery in the history of the United States. Slavery in the first century was primarily uh, an economic issue. Most of the people who were slaves became slaves because they were economically destitute, and so they sold themselves into slavery to provide for themselves and to provide for their families. Slavery was not primarily an issue that was driven by race as it was in our history. So Peter is addressing an issue that is different. If you want to understand how should a Christian react to an issue like slavery in the history of the United States, to the great injustices that occurred through slavery in the U.S., I encourage you to read the biography of William Wilberforce. I am amazed at how many Americans do not know who William Wilberforce is. You need to read about this man. He is one of the greatest characters in all of history. He's a British man who was largely singularly responsible for the abolition of slavery in the British colonies. Great biography uh, written by a man named Kevin Belmonte. He's kind of the modern expert on William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce's, his work influenced the abolition of slavery in the United States. So you really need to know about this man. He did it for Christ. He did it for Christ. And if reading is not your thing, a movie came out. Okay, so you can get the same stuff. Watch a movie. It's called Amazing Grace. Just released recently. Okay. Peter's talking about a setting that's a little different from that. Talking about household slaves, primarily indentured servants. And so there's some differences. Those folks couldn't quit their job. We're we're employees, not slaves, right? We can quit. They couldn't quit. We have rights not to be physically punished for not doing the job right. Well, we, we should take advantage of certain rights, so to speak, and redress grievances at times when unethical things are transpiring. But I think there's also good application here in this section about household servants, because all of us live under authority. In some arena of our lives, we live under authority. And how should we respond when we do so? Well, Peter tells us, citizens to government, servants to masters, submit. Remain under, stay under authority. Why? Well, again, he gives motivation for this. Verse 19, he says, For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. He says, submit yourselves to masters, not only to the ones who are good and gentle, but also to the ones who are unreasonable. And that word for unreasonable is is scolios, from which we get scoliosis. It's it's the master who's bent. Even the one who is harsh, he's unreasonable. Submit for the Lord's sake, for the sake of your conscience, because again, one day you will stand before God. He will be accountable for the way that he treated you, but you will be accountable for the way that you submitted. Did you show honor and respect? So as long as you stay in a job and you choose by an act of your free will not to quit, submit. Do your work. 
Don't complain. And don't disparage the authority around you. That is the way of the world, isn't it? For every single one of us who've ever worked at any job, you know everyone talks bad about the boss. They gather and tear down and find all the faults. Don't do it. Show honor, show respect. As long as you're choosing to stay, show honor and respect. And I would say, stay longer than you want to stay. Okay, as a general principle, stay longer than you want to stay. It is our flesh that immediately wants to jump out. Okay, and I've been there. I've been in, in, in bad jobs with bad bosses. Remember, actually, my first job, my first job was at Kmart. Okay, and uh, I remember after I'd been there for about a week, my manager was, he was not, he was not a good manager at all. And I knew all this, of course, because I was 16. And, uh, you know, I had, the, I had the world figured out. And he was, he was not a good boss. And I was frustrated. And I was already getting sucked into all the complaining that would happen among the employees about all the managers. And I remember coming home one day and I asked my dad some advice. I said, Dad, what, what should I do? Should I just quit? And my dad said, he's your boss. He's in charge. What you need to do is you need to figure out how can you be the absolute best employee he has ever had. And so we talked about it for a while and we came up with a strategy. And so what I began to do is I would show up at work, I would punch my time card and I would immediately go wherever he was in the store. I would find my manager and I would have a piece of paper and I would have a pen and I would say, what do you need me to do today? Give me a list. Because the way he would normally manage me is I'd walk in, I'd start working on something, he'd find me and he'd start me on one job. I'd get it halfway finished, he'd move me to another job, get halfway finished. I'd spend eight hours jumping from job to job, every job completely uh, incomplete. His whole area looked like a disaster because all these half baked jobs and it was so frustrating. And so I went in, I said, tell me what you need me to do. And I made a list. And then, then I asked him, I said, what are the priority items for you today? What has to be done first? Can you put these in order for me and I'll get started? Well, you know, making a list like that and putting them in priorities had, had, had never crossed his mind. And so I began to do that and my life got a lot better. And his area began to look a lot better. He began to use that practice with all of his employees. They didn't all like it, but I was able to show him honor and respect and I stopped talking bad about him. And I began to realize this principle of submission, that it is my duty to show him honor and respect. He's accountable for how he treats me, but I'm accountable to show him honor and respect. And ultimately, it's not about me even enjoying my job. Sometimes God puts us in really uncomfortable situations so that we can point people to Christ through the way that we live our lives. At the end of this section, Peter pulls out the trump card. Why should you do that? It's always the right answer. It's Jesus. (laughs) You should live this way because Jesus lived this way. And yes, it's it's very radical, and it's really uncomfortable. But this is the way that Jesus lived. Let me read it to you. For you have been called for this purpose. Why am I here, God? I don't know. Well, First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. You have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. In other words, Christ suffered for you, not just to remove your sins, but Christ suffered for you to show you this is how you should live in a world that's hostile toward God. Follow this example. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, live right lives. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus Christ has suffered more injustice than any of us have ever suffered. And Peter says, follow the example of Christ. As we close, we have an opportunity to celebrate communion together. And what I'd like for us to do as we're being served and as we're we're having some time to meditate is let's think about the example of Christ. Not just what the cross accomplished in removing the debt of our sin, but also how Christ conducted himself even when he was being treated unjustly. Okay, would the men come forward and serve us? And as we have those moments, let's just meditate upon the example of Christ and what that might look like in our own lives. And then we'll take the elements together. Isaiah wrote, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he said to his followers, he said, the bread is symbol of my body broken for you, the pain and the suffering that I will have to undergo because of your sins. And I want you to take it as a reminder of my suffering. Let's take the bread together. Then Jesus took a cup and he said, this cup will serve as a reminder of my blood that was shed to provide forgiveness of sins for you. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you first for the work of Jesus Christ that reconciles us to you. And we thank you that the payment that we have received for our sins through him is, is permanent, will never be rescinded. He is faithful. We thank you, Father, also for the example of Jesus Christ, a life that was in every respect supernatural. He lived in complete dependence upon your spirit and as a result was able to serve and serve and serve and sacrifice and as a result provide for every person a way that they can be reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to live lives like Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Father, we do thank you for the incredible example of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able, even in just a small way, uh, to comprehend the incredible sacrifice, the creator of the universe, the maker of all things, the eternal son of God would be willing to come to earth and take on human form, that he would be willing uh, to serve and suffer on our behalf. Father, it really is beyond our our comprehension, but I pray, Lord, that it would guide and instruct the way that we live our lives every single day, that we would be willing to follow the example of Jesus Christ, suffer on his behalf, and serve 
surrender our rights and submit so that others can know your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.